Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. One of the most intriguing parts of your background was you call yourself a computational folklorist. Two words I never expected to see in the same sentence. So I'm fascinated by this. How has technology changed the way we think about stories and mythology and culture? Well, if we think about it, uh, we live our life embedded in stories. We're always telling stories. We're telling little story parts. Uh, We're always trying to make sense of the world uh, through storytelling. And we're always trying to understand which decisions are the right ones to make given a certain situation by telling stories. So if we think about it in in sort of general broad terms, uh, folklore can be considered informal cultural expression circulating on and across social networks, right? We're all part of social networks and all of our social networks have some sort of informal cultural expression. And that's what I as a folklorist study. Now, once we get to uh, cheap storage and uh, very fast computation, all of the affordances of being able to uh, count very high very quickly and remember what you're counting uh, become available for studying all of the tiny little variations that we see uh, in cultural practice across not a thousand people or 10,000 people, but we're talking at the scale of millions or if you want to go global, billions of people. Uh, And if you think about it, your own everyday life, how many stories or story parts you encounter in your everyday life, probably 10 to 20 whenever you encounter somebody that you talk with. So we're talking a very large scale and something that we're all embedded in. I'm talking today with Tim Tangolini, who's the professor of folklore at UC Berkeley. Tim, it's great to uh, to have you on the show and to spend some time talking to you about this fascinating subject. Well, thanks for having me, Mike. (laughs) I was really delighted that you reached out to me. You know, you've you've said before, and I, I think this is a great quote, that folklore is the first big data field in humanities. You know, to, to your earlier comments, in a way, a story is kind of part of a giant cultural, almost biological machine learning model where we, we, we test out ideas and relationships. And in a sense, it's a form of collective memory and learning. Absolutely. I mean, I always joke about... Uh doing organic AI when we're trying to validate something. Right. Uh, and that's really what we're, we're good at as humans. We're good at uh, structuring our uh, environment, structuring our experiences, and then using those as part of our uh, alignment uh, of culture. I often talk about cultural ideology, norms, beliefs, and values. And that's really what storytelling has become extremely efficient uh, at, um, at negotiating. So whenever we're in a situation, uh, it might be at the pub, and I might say, hey, Mike, did you hear what happened to Bob? And you're like, no, I have no idea what happened to Bob, but I'm sure it's bad because only bad things happen to Bob. So now we've already (laughs) aligned ourselves. We're talking about Bob. We've already established that we kind of know each other and that we're part of the same group. And then I'm going to tell you something about what happened to Bob. In a sense, it's sort of like the Ghostbusters question. Right? So when ghosts appear in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? Well, the answer to that question is always going to be ideological. Right. right? So there's always this going to be this some sort of threat or something happens. And I've kind of come up with a strategy for dealing with that. And that's what we use storytelling for again and again and again. It might be very mundane, 
Uh, but usually if, it, if, if it's something that I'm going to tell a story about and I'm going to tell it again and again, it's because it's something that's important to me. And this, you know, arguably it became a, a kind of an evolutionary advantage for Homo sapiens, the, our ability to form stories, to tell stories, to, to gossip. No, absolutely. I think there's, there's a huge advantage to it. You are able to very quickly, uh, because word of mouth is, is pretty darn fast. It's not word of internet speed, but it's pretty darn fast uh, in close homogeneous groups. Uh, and we can very quickly start to align uh, our uh, beliefs, our norms, our values uh, through storytelling. And those can be exemplary. You know, my friend Jill did this and I can have that story end well. And so that's an endorsement of what Jill did, right? And that goes all the way around the community. Oh, well, when Jill was confronted with this, she did this uh, and we all are, you know, in agreement. Well, then Jill, maybe she gains a little bit of status in the community and we're all going to be a little bit more like Jill the next time we're in some kind of situation like that. And that happens almost on a, uh, a, a well, it certainly happens on a daily basis, but it can probably happen on an hourly basis. Uh, think about if we want to talk historically when people were in much smaller communities, right? They're always checking in with each other and maybe there are times when uh, people are working with the cattle or maybe there are times when people are out uh, uh, threshing or something like that. These are kind of communal times and you can tell stories because you're going to keep yourselves entertained, but stories over their incredible number of repetition become extremely efficient uh, at uh, communicating this uh, cultural ideology, which is the basis of all of the groups that we're a part of. What exactly are then uh, folklore and legends relative to stories and, and how are they connected to modern ideas like fake news and conspiracy? Oh, well, that's a great question. So. Uh, I use stories kind of uh, broadly and generically because a lot of people uh, understand what story is. And I use legend in a, in a very kind of almost narrow uh, academic sense, right? Legend for me are stories that are told as true, situated in a historical time uh, with uh, potentially verifiable people. They don't actually have to be verifiable, but uh, it's a believable narrative told as true. Whereas folklore in general might encompass something that we all know is not true. If I start a story once upon a time, you know you're in for a fairy tale and that everything that comes after that uh, is not supposed to be taken. as. So it's Red Riding Hood say, versus King Arthur. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, if I say this happened to Bob, <laughs> then you know, we both know Bob, uh, then, uh, then that's being told as true. So that's more like legend. And legend has a very set uh, structure in, in many, many cultures. I haven't, you know, I can't say it's universal, but boy, it's very, very common. There's an orientation, sets up who we are. There's some sort of complicating action. Usually it's a threat or some disruption. Then the people in the story come up with a strategy for dealing with that. And at the end, there's a resolution. How well did that strategy work? You can look at the exorcist as a perfect example of this, right? Uh, mom comes down for breakfast and her daughter uh, is her head is spinning around and uh, she's vomiting blood. So what do you do? Well, you know, her first strategy is reach for the Tylenol. Turns out Tylenol is not an anti-satanic, right? So it doesn't really work against Satan. Goes to the doctor. Doctor prescribes antibiotics. Same problem. Antibiotics, not anti-satanics. They finally go through all of the different strategies until they get to a Jesuit priest 
uh, who lives in the, the basement of Georgetown University, and they pretty much solve the problem, right? So they go through these. Now, the difference with rumor, and we hear about rumor a lot, right? Rumor is very, very common. What rumor often does is says, here's the threat or here's the disruption, and it pushes it back into real world action. So what are you going to do about it, right? So what are you going to do about this, Mike? All right, I heard that there are, uh, you know, there's a, there's a ghost in that house down the street, right? And if you're a teenager, it's sort of like, what are we going to do about it? We're going to go down there at night, right? Or uh, one of the studies we were doing was during the, the Green Revolution in Iran, uh, one of the tweets that went out was there are tanks in the streets of Tehran, and it was basically asking people, well, and so what are you going to do about it, right? So you can imagine this happens in all of those low information, uh, low trust situations where you don't know what's actually happening. You get some information. That's kind of rumor. Rumor is what I would call a hyperactive transmission state of legend, where it's also often missing the ending. Right. right? It doesn't. And it's still you fluid. You the strategy yourself. Right. And so then we might talk in story parts, say, hey, Mike, did you hear what, what's going on? What should what should we do about it? Right now, me and you, we negotiate a strategy for dealing with it. You know, and then we jump in our car maybe and drive down to whatever it is that's the threat or disruption. And we've come up with some idea that maybe if we, you know, throw a dishwashing liquid at whatever is happening, it'll, it'll go right by then. Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe it does. Retrospect, uh, it, it would it would turn into a legend. So in this sort of specific example of, of conspiracies, you, you recently took a couple of conspiracies. I, I think it was Pizzagate and Bridgegate, and you right. you, you used those uh, as a way of training a specifically designed AI to understand um, you know, the kind of generative nature of, of, of stories. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and sort of what led you to that uh, analysis? Well, that's, that's a great question. What, what led us to it? Uh, I was working with the uh, Institute of Pure and Applied Math, uh, an NSF institute, uh, where I was co-directing an institute on culture analytics. And um, so there were a lot of us there who were interested in culture-specific problems and also interested in applications of machine learning uh, to some of these problems. And so I had been thinking that uh, conspiracy theory probably uh, has an awful lot to do with legend. You know, there's some sort of threat or disruption and there's going to be some strategy to deal with it. And so we were looking for uh, some way to test that uh, at internet scale. And so we, we turned to a conspiracy theory that was on the internet at the time, which was Pizzagate. And um, fortunately for us, the New York Times had done some very nice work on kind of describing it, but also generating a, uh, uh, an illustration of the different actors in this, in this conspiracy theory and how they were connected. And so our first challenge was, can we reproduce the New York Times graph? And then we were talking, we thought, wait a second, this is a conspiracy theory. Is this going to be any different from a conspiracy? Right? Think of Watergate. Hmm. And right at that time, we knew that Bridgegate was a big uh, conspiracy, an actual conspiracy. And fortunately for us, the New York Times had also done an illustration. So now we had external validation data. And we had these two things that we knew were different, right? A conspiracy theory, Pizzagate, that's something that people sitting on uh, their social media accounts are negotiating together. They're generating this narrative out of access to perhaps hidden knowledge or something like that. And this is where you get Hillary Clinton involved with James Alephantis and John and Tony Podesta and a pizza parlor and <laughs> satanic pedophilia and cannibalism 
which actually is really interesting because it prompts. Remember, I was talking about strategies. What are you going to do about this? Well, a guy in North Carolina said, nobody's taking action. I'm going to take action. I'm going to get in my truck. I'm driving up to Washington, D.C. with my uh, AR-15. And I'm going to go into that pizza restaurant and I'm going to free the kids who are down in the cellar. Uh, and of course, he does it. Right. So this is real world action on narrative. And so we're thinking, OK, well, that's actually fairly problematic. Uh, and uh, on the other side, we had Bridgegate. Bridgegate, nobody wanted that to come to the surface. Right. If you're in an actual conspiracy, what is your goal? To hide it. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> if you're working on a conspiracy theory, you want everybody to know about it. Right. So they're, they're, they're kind of on. So in a sense, um, a fake conspiracy theory will stabilize its elements a lot faster than a true conspiracy where it, it tends to be leaked out over time. Yeah, that's that was one of our hypotheses. I mean, think about it. Right. Yeah. If I'm with a group of friends and we're trying to come up with a narrative, it's sort of like if I introduce, uh, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Joe Biden's involved. It's OK, let's bring Joe, Joe Biden. That's good. We can bring him in. And uh, also the uh, under associate secretary uh, of housing is it's like, no, no, it's, they're not involved in this. Right. I want to have, you know, some limited number of people who I'm working with in my conspiracy theory. And, hmm. and, and often I've got some secret knowledge which is going to bring people together from different domains. Right. Where they were never really you wouldn't associate Hillary Clinton with. Uh, satanic cannibalism and casual dining, right? These are, these are, sure, I'm sure she goes to a pizzeria, but you wouldn't think that this was a major area in which she's a, a, a player, right? So with the Pizzagate, we discovered that actually this access to WikiLeaks and this inventive interpretation of WikiLeaks kind of crossed all of these domains and brought these people together, but a limited number of people who became very stable very quickly. It's very hard to add you know, more actors uh, to that graph. Whereas on the other hand, Bridgegate, like three weeks ago, there was something added to Bridgegate. This thing's been going on for years at this point. Right. So that was fascinating to see how a real, this might be a, a telltale of a real conspiracy. Things just keep coming out in drips and drabs, right? So your, uh, your AI model, was it, was it designed to, in a sense, randomly mix up these elements or nodes of a story to kind of predict how a conspiracy can emerge over time? We didn't take it from, from that point initially. What we were trying to do was trying to say, given this extremely noisy data that we're getting from, say, 4chan or Reddit, hmm. can we align? So for example, Hillary Clinton gets mentioned in like 20 different ways. Can we somehow or other align all the Hillary Clintons and all of the Tony Podestas so that uh, those really become one single node? And then can we classify the uh, the interactant relationships so that we don't have 15,000 interactant relationships, but we have some smaller uh, limited number? Now, once you have that, you can posit this generative model, right, where a conspiracy theory or a, a post, we're not going to say the whole conspiracy theory, but a post uh, that's going to be acceptable to the people in Reddit, right? Where you're not going to come across as being, no, that's not what we're talking about. I right? think about the pub that I was mentioning before. You walk in and everybody's talking about uh, plumbers and you introduce 
uh, UFOs, they're going to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> that's not what we're talking about, right? So if I try to introduce something in a post that's not, you know, it's not valid, uh, it's just not going to get picked up, right? So it'll, 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 it'll basically disappear in, in the wash. So what we wind up doing is we wind up finding those actants and those relationships between actants uh, that are uh, the most common, right? They have some sort of probability distribution between Hillary and Tony Podesta. We'll, we'll find some relationship uh, with some probability. Now, once I have those distributions, I can actually generate posts, hmm. right? I can just I can just basically say, oh, I'm going to start with Hillary. I'm going to have a Tony Podesta, and I'm going to, you know, with 80% probability, the relationship is going to be this. So I just I just basically have to fill in the syntax once I've decided these are my uh, my selected actants so I can start generating posts. Is this, is this like conspiracy Cluedo, you know, Hillary yeah. and the pizza with, 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 with the stolen server? Exactly, right. exactly. It, it becomes a little bit like that. Whereas a real conspiracy, it's a, it's a little bit harder because uh, there is no, you know, obvious probability distribution over these, uh, these relationships. Uh, so we, what we found was that the, the networks that we were were extracting from conspiracy theories were were actually quite fragile, right? So we could delete edges or we could delete nodes and uh, all of the domains would fall apart. Can this actually be used in a positive sense in that if you can use a technology to understand how you can generate a conspiracy, can you use AI to unravel one? That's, that's why we were, this was the motivation. I mean, the motivation was not to actually start a conspiracy farm in, in, in some far off country <laughs> and disrupt the world. Although I could, I could think of some state actors who would love to buy that technology from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but we're basically modeling. We, we, we kind of reverse engineered what clearly seems to be going on in some places, right? So yeah. uh, now that you have this, uh, then you can start to, you can see where conspiracy theory theories are starting to emerge. So that's what we're doing with the COVID-19 stuff. We're harvesting and modeling, running our pipeline uh, on COVID-19 discussions, uh, both on Reddit and 4chan and unfortunately 8chan since uh, March. Uh, and we've been discovering that we can we can actually capture fairly quickly the emergence of say the 5G Bill Gates uh, anti-vaccination conspiracy. Uh, and we can also capture uh, influenza, film your hospital, don't wear masks, the, the, the COVID-19 is a hoax. And we can also see how these are starting to align with each other uh, under the guise of some sort of broader conspiracy theory. Uh, we thought that maybe QAnon would take a, a larger role uh, in the COVID-19 space, but uh, we've seen sort of the, um, the emergence of, of the QAnon groups, but they, they, they don't seem to be kind of latching on to some other parts uh, of burgeoning or emerging conspiracy theories. But once you can see where they're making connections, then perhaps... Uh, you can devise uh, uh, community-targeted messaging that says, "Well, you know, 5G is is not activating quantum chips placed in vaccines, right?" right. How you do that—that's a—that's a whole other—that's a public health messaging uh, challenge. But I think what you, what we are able to do is we're able to see the uh, the crystallization uh, of some of these conspiracy theories that then become very uh, very solid and uh, lots of people start to adhere to and they start to add their own two cents uh, but they're doing it on the on the on the basis of these uh, pre-existing probability distributions as it were 
And so they're reinforcing parts uh, of the conspiracy theory. So our goal then is to figure out where can you cut it to have the greatest impact. This computational perspective, has this given you a different view on QAnon? I mean, does this look like an emergent phenomenon or is it someone with their own AI model sitting in the background intervening at exactly the precise point to generate maximum disorder? That's a very good question. Uh, it, it is uh, it is very much redolent of this kind of monological thinking uh, where it uh, the people who are and I don't think it's a I, I think there's probably a group of people who have internalized this model, right? We were talking about organic AI before. Yeah. The best AI is is kind of right here. Uh, and uh, they recognize certain narratives that will that will align very nicely with this series of domains that they've been aligning since Pizzagate, right? right. So QAnon kind of grows out of Pizzagate. So if you can understand how Pizzagate was put together. Right. Well, then then it, then it's just, you know, once you've got the uh, the magic sauce, as it were, it's, it's pretty easy to just keep adding, you know, sort of McDonald's with their, you know, Big Macs is like three patties. On. What's that? I love this idea of this, this organic AI, because, you know, if, if you think back um, even like 10 years ago, there was a big push to the idea of crowdsourcing on the Internet, solving the world's problems. It doesn't matter what the puzzle was, locating a missing you know, girl in Mexico or, you know, right. finding the link between, you know, corruption in this department, you could use the internet. But it seems yeah. like that has moved away from something that is um, optimistic and altruistic to essentially uh, these conspiracy generating machines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, now we are anti-vax oh, and 5G. Really depressing. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, certainly uh, humans have always been crowdsourcing. That's what, that's what culture is. Hmm. Right. It's, right. It's crowdsourcing. It's crowdsourcing values, beliefs, and norm. Uh, that's what we've all. That's what we do as humans. We 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 crowdsource stuff. You don't need to call it crowdsource. You could call it something else. Right. Uh, now, certain things <clears throat> work well within a particular community. I think partly where the quote the internet kind of falls apart is if you if the idea is that everybody is part of this one community, and we've seen again and again that. That actually, that's not the case. People are parts of multiple and different communities, and it's not all one happy uh, internet world. Just like it's not all one happy world, right? So there is, uh, there are a, a lot of, um, there are a lot of analogies, and then of course there are communities. What's different? This is really fascinating. So earlier we were talking about word of mouth and how fast things spread in small communities. And I said close homogeneous groups, right? So everybody knows each other, right? Or they have some imagined connection to each other. And things can move very quickly within that community. Uh, but you're still limited by some physical barriers until we get to this internet age where everybody's got ubiquitous mobile computing. And at that point, what I call the velocity uh, of information spread changes. Not only the speed, but the directionality of it, mm -hmm. right? So I can be very targeted and I can do it very, very quickly. And then of course the magnitude is much greater too, right? I can, before I could talk to maybe 10 people uh, at the pub and now, well, when I go on Twitter, I can only reach 12 people, but other people <laughs> you know, can, can reach, you know, 50 million people. Well, th this also becomes a concern because you can take the um, analysis essentially that, that you, you guys have done around using AI to generate narratives and you combine it with uh, generative models like GPT-3, 
some of the work coming out of OpenAI. And you've now got a, a machine for the mass weaponization of misinformation. Yeah, so actually somebody, when I started working uh, in computational folkloristics, which is a, kind of a field that me and a, a colleague at, at, at Rutgers and really under the auspices of uh, NSF's IPAM, we started and, and been fortunate to also receive funding through uh, not only Google, but also NEH's um, Office of Digital Humanities. Uh, <laughs> so I came into my office one day and one of my grad students had put a... Uh, like a, a sign on my door that said weaponized folklore lab uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, because there is a there's a strong weaponization component to this but i think folklore uh the way i see it has always been weaponized it's a very powerful tool telling stories is unbelievably powerful and if mm. you start to get people you know uh feeling uh wronged on the basis of a story that you've now crowdsourced as it were, right? Remember, it's informal, cultural, expressive forms circulating on and across social networks. That's folklore, right? That's by definition. You wind up with things, very bad things like like genocide. You, you also wind up with very, very good things, you know, all sorts of uh, collective things that come out of our culture, everything from art to public buildings and universities and generosity and all of those things but you also like i said you also get really bad things i'm really interested how this how this particular field develops with time i mean if ai and data are now are hoogan and moonen whispering in our ears about about the stories that are being told you yeah. know at scale what are the new kinds of problems that you think computational folklore will start to to look at i mean what are some of the things that you're thinking about these are great questions uh we're obviously going to keep working on this storytelling at scale uh problem which we see as an immediate challenge and then looking forward both you know there, there are obviously some applications in cultural history and cultural analysis but what we've been talking about are some really challenging uh areas where you uh perhaps computational folkloristics could work with uh, groups that are, are are trying to help with public health or perhaps restore and preserve cultural heritage sites, right? You think of perhaps the uh, incredible library in Timbuktu, uh, for example, or or the Buddhist statues uh, uh, that were that were blown up, unfortunately. The ability to to take advantage of sort of cultural knowledge at scale mm. uh, lead to a lot of uh, very positive things. And at the same time, understanding how uh, AI and some of these deep learning methods that you mentioned, GPT-3, uh, which could be used for great good and, and also for really great bad. So understanding the mechanisms of things like cultural expressive forms and how they are influenced uh, by this new scale and this new velocity and the implications that has for communities, everything from you know, small communities like as small as families to very large communities, um, nations or regional groups or even linguistic groups. Right? Yeah. So we can use it for language preservation. We can use this for, you know, all, all sorts of cultural applications. I think your imagination is really going to be the limit. It's going and to also, I, I think, I, allow us to see, uh, you know, relationships between cultures and cultural artifacts that we may have missed. I mean, if you were 
If yeah. you were Fraser and writing the Golden Bough today, you yeah. probably it'd probably be an algorithm that you'd be writing rather than a sort of a painstaking <laughs> study with like yeah. you know bits yeah, of paper. In some, way. in some way, so one of the things we're working on is we've got uh, two and a half thousand, no, almost three thousand fairy tales from Denmark collected from 1860 to 1920, which were then embedded in these two very well-known uh, international uh, indices. Uh, so we never throw away data. We're always using what people came up with in the past. They spent a lot of time. They were experts. Let's take advantage of the domain expert. And so we've embedded these these stories in this very large indexing thing. We've come up with a, a fingerprint uh, of Danish fairy tales, right? And then we can compare that to a fingerprint. We've got another corpus of Dutch, uh, and we could probably get a corpus of, uh, I work in Korea, so maybe Korean tales. And we get these cultural fingerprints, at least on the fairy tale level, that we could you know, perhaps compare at tradition-wide scale. Mm -hmm. The other thing we were talking about in this uh, IPM culture analytics group was, you know, is there a calculus of culture, right? So is there, can we come up with some novel mathematics that help us to describe culture and culture change? Uh, and that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big question. Uh, I, I think I should have been more prepared. I have these seven challenge questions that we came up with um, for culture analytics. Well, when, when, I, when I think about how some of this stuff is going to permeate our, our daily lives, I, I always think to that um, recent book by Neil Stevenson, um, uh, Fall or, or Dodge in Hell, where he talks about this near future where the wealthy have their own personal editors using algorithms to create a, a feed of reality um, because everyone's essentially on a different reality of information. Um, you know, because of these generative conspiracies, essentially. Yeah. So this is one of the things that I, I'm, I'm quite concerned about and I'm, I'm worried about, which is the, the broadening gap uh, between the haves and the have nots. Uh, and are there ways that we can take advantage uh, of the incredible affordances uh, of computation and AI to start to address um, uh, that gap so that it isn't just the, you know, it isn't the Decameron kind of thing where the wealthy go off and, and survive by telling each other stories in their in their villa, uh, but rather, you know, people who who are struggling both in urban centers and in rural areas uh, have access and ways to, to leverage uh, the positive things that we find. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of positive things uh, that we can do and you know, it's a little bit you know, in weird ways. It's it's easier to work on the the negative things like the conspiracy theories. It's sort of like oh my god, uh, we've got to work on this. Uh, and it's a little bit it's easier to find. Uh, and it, it's almost those people who are shouting loudest. Yeah. So we have these we have these uh, we have these different problems. Arrow we call them the arrowhead problems in culture analytics. You know, what are the metrics for the analysis of culture? Uh, can we identify, define, and measure cultural complexities? Uh, is culture automatically the result of the dynamics of groups? Uh, what are the fundamental mechanisms for cultural network formation? And uh, what is the invariance of offline and online cultures? Is there some coevolution that we can find in there? What is? Can we measure the impact of culture on social conflict, inequality, health, the environment? Uh, and uh, can we measure the rate of change in, in culture? What are the interdependencies? Uh, and then uh, can one really develop a calculus of culture? 
So those are those are the things. Those are the big questions that we're struggling with, and uh, you know, I think those are that, that, that's going to take a lot of us. That's going to take a lot of people who are AI specialists, and going to take a lot of people who are domain specialists. You know, people say to me, "Oh, well, the humanities is dead." I, I really hope the humanities is not dead. Uh, because uh, I think that really the, the huge advances we're going to make in AI is going to be taking people, uh, engineers, computer scientists, applied mathematicians uh, who have this knowledge of, you know, n-dimensional spaces and all sorts of different types of embeddings and how to represent uh, very complex uh, relationships and the people who've been developing the abilities to speak and learn and read different languages and have embedded themselves as ethnographers in different cultures and have spent, you know, uh, decades learning about artistic practice, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in uh, South India. And all of these people who are trained in the humanities and the qualitative social sciences working collaboratively to address these giant, giant problems that if we don't address, you know, you can see we've got this public health crisis, we're going to have a climate crisis. We're just gonna we're gonna have a we're gonna have a, a real series of very difficult things and uh, you know if people say well the humanities is dead then we're gonna lose out on on the young students who are training to be parts of these teams who can who can address this positively and and creatively. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.